Good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third. It's great to be with you today. We are in the middle of a new series called Among American Gods. It's a series that examines the Ten Commandments and how they confront the idols, the gods of our American life. Last week, we looked at the first commandment. And there we discovered that we were created to worship what we love, either unto ruin or restoration. And this week, we turn our attention to the second commandment. Now, I don't know if many of you know this. Um, I spent the last 14 years uh, as a staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the University of Virginia before coming to third. And I, I remember this one uh, incident with a student. Her name was Ellen, uh, with, with crystal clarity. It was during our first couple years that we were on staff, and she kind of came into my office, and she was very distressed. Now, uh, she had many reasons for distress. She was a college student, so uh, sometimes it was her boyfriend, sometimes it was her relationships, sometimes it was her grades, sometimes it was more serious things. She wrestled with an eating disorder uh, since she was uh, early high school. But the reason she came into my office distressed this time was because she had met Carrie. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Carrie. Carrie was UVA's own Sex in the City journalist columnist. She had an op-ed piece in the, uh, the, the university newspaper, and she was one of the most popular students uh, during her whole four years there. She would, in these uh, articles, uh, record her entire love life in sordid details um, for everyone to read, and everybody loved it. <laughs> um, she was one of the most frustrating students for me. To, it was very frustrating for me as a pastor um, because if you look at Carrie's life, uh, she was boldly not living for God at all, and uh, boldly it looked like flourishing. <laughs> it looked like she was meeting every bar that UVA had to set and then passing it. She lived on the lawn. Uh, she was uh, someone who knew everybody. And what had frustrated Ellen so much was that she thought that if she got to meet Carrie, then um, her life would just be a giant sham and she'd be able to see it. But what happened was... Uh, she got to know Carrie, and Carrie was amazing. And, and it was a significant crisis of faith for Ellen. And so we're sitting in my office, and she's asking me, why, Derek, why? Why should I fight my idols when Carrie is embracing them, and it's working for her? And I told her, I said, I don't know. Do it. Go ahead. Do it. No, I didn't. I'm just kidding. I did not say that. That's, that's, not, that's, that's not what a pastor is. I, uh, I said the right thing in that moment, I believe, as, as best as you can. Uh, but I'll tell you why I remember this story so vividly. It's because I, I was shaken by it. It was, it was one of the harder experiences for me. Um, Carrie's reputation, it, it influenced a lot of my students. And it brought a lot of doubt into their lives about whether really like following Jesus and fighting their idols was really worth it or not. Um, that question, why, why should we abstain from idolatry? Why should we not do this? Is at the heart of, of Ellen's life. It's at the heart of the second commandment. Let me pray for us before we read the scripture together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. We confess that we have eyes but cannot see, ears uh, but cannot hear. We have hands and hearts, but we cannot feel. And so, um, 
on this Pentecost Sunday. Spirit of the living God, give us ears to hear. Give us minds to know your truth. Reveal yourself to us by your word and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You can read along in your bulletin if you desire. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, There are at least three things, but there's three things we're going to focus on today uh, about idolatry that are revealed from our text. The first is this, the anatomy of idolatry. Our text is anchored by these three prohibitions, these three words in verses four and five. Do not make, do not bow down, do not worship. And together they become a sort of a roadmap. They reveal to us the inner workings, the, the anatomy of idolatry. The first word is asa. It's uh, translated, you shall not make. You shall not make an image or a likeness of anything. I love what's going on in the language of these first couple of verses. It's repetitive and it's inclusive. Um, You see it in the two words that are here. They're two words that are commonly used to describe idols, image or likeness. And you see it in the totality of the source of potential idolatry, not from the heaven above, not from the earth below, not from the waters beneath the earth. You take these things together, and and what Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6 is saying, do not make a copy or an image uh, that is uh, like any created thing to represent God. And the other prohibitions then expand this idea, because the second commandment isn't concerned solely with the uh, crafting of images or likenesses. It's concerned with what we do with them. The second word is shaha. It means do not bow down. It carries with it, in all of its ranges of meaning, the idea of of prostration. Now, prostration, we don't do this very often anymore. (laughs) Prostration is the act of uh, physically lowering yourself to the ground. It It is a representation, physical representation of the power dynamic between a ruler and a subject. Do not bow down to these images. Do not ascribe greatness to them, is what it's saying. The third word is this. It's a vad. It means do not worship. Do not glorify. Do not defy. Do not imbue any created images of anything with godness. What what do these words together reveal about the anatomy of idolatry to us? It's this. When we take good, created things, and we invest them with greatness that is reserved for God alone, we violate the second commandment. When we take good, created things, and we invest them with a greatness that that is reserved for God alone, we violate the second commandment. We become idolaters. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 1. They exchange the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Martin Luther encapsulates the anatomy of idolatry beautifully when he says, whatever your heart clings to or confides in, this is in reality, this is your God, your functional savior. Idols are functional saviors. I love that phrase. It is brilliant. It captures in just two words most of what the Bible says about idols and idolatry. But what does that mean? How can a good thing, how can a good created thing become a bad thing? How can it become imbued with godness, with greatness? What's a functional savior? Two examples. Consider uh, the woman who desires a career, which is a great thing. You and I were made in God's image. We're created for purposeful flourishing in the world. Proverbs 31 an entrepreneurial vision of what it means to be a woman. She buys and sells real estate. She's got a textile business and she runs the whole house. Makes you wonder, what is the man doing? You know, he's sitting at the gates. But, but if for this woman, her career becomes an idol, she clings to it, she, she confides in it, gives it, I mean, well, what happens? She, she deifies it. She'll deify her productivity, her reputation, deify her ambition and work will become for her a savior. Why? Because it rescues her from her hell. Her hell is failure or obscurity. And and her work can rescue her from that, can deliver her to her heaven, which is success and recognition. This is how a good thing, a good created thing, can be served and worshipped as God. Or consider the man who desires a good thing, like marriage. Genesis 2.18 says it is not good for a man to be alone. But, but what about when he clings to the idea of marriage, confides in it? What, when his self-worth ebbs and flows, rises and falls with the amount of women who show interest in him? He deifies his desire. That's what happens when we do. deifies his desire. And a wife becomes a savior, a functional savior, rescuing him. From his hell, which is singleness, and delivers him to his heaven, which is a family. And so he worships or he invests a good created thing with, with God-like significance in his life. Using Luther's language, what, what, what is it? What is it that you cling to, that you confide in? What are the things that you cling to and confide in as God? In this season of your life, where is your significance coming from? What do you fear most? What's your personal hell right now? And what do you turn to to rescue you from it? This this is the anatomy of idolatry. They're functional saviors, good created things, that we cling to and confide in as God. Now, one of the things you'll notice about this sermon is we do not have a specific American God that we're talking about today. Why? Because this is where all of them come from. (laughs) This is the seedbed for them all. Every single one we talk about, the rest of this series, it will be a functional savior that is fighting for the allegiance of your heart and your life. That's the anatomy of idolatry. The second thing this text reveals is that there is an allure to idolatry, the allure of idolatry. And what I mean by this, by allure, is this, that that, that we will find that idols have power over us 
because of the promises that they make. They have power over us because of the promises that they make to us. Genesis chapter 3 is the best place to see this working out in Scripture. I'll set the stage for you just a little bit. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God creates everything. He creates Adam and Eve, makes them in his image. He puts them in a garden. He gives them, they're naked and not ashamed, uh, puts them in a garden to work. And then God tells them, you can eat of any fruit from any tree in this garden that I've put you in, except for one. There's this one tree. It's called the tree of good and evil. If you eat any fruit from that tree, you will die. And then and they listen to him and they obey. And they go on living life of flourishing with creation and with one another and with God together. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes to Eve and basically says to her, what is the situation here? <laughs> and, and she tells him basically what I just told you. And we pick up their conversation in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 3. He says to her, you will, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, the tree of, of good and evil, the, um, you and your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, was pleasing to the eye, was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. There are two promises every idol makes. You shall not die and you can be like God. They are the two promises they make to us. You shall not die. Idols offer to us a way to experience life on our own terms, life apart from God. A way to have life that does not require relationship or restraint, our, our terms. They also offer to us that we can be like God. There is the temptation, the offer, the promise of autonomous meaning and permanence and power. It is the resemblance of Godhood without the responsibility or the relationship. And this is what they do. Idols promise life and meaning. Life and meaning on our own terms, apart from God. They are functional saviors. We're going to dig into this a little bit. What's that mean? They are functional saviors, which means they work. Idols do not just promise things. They provide them for a time and in a limited way. But they do. They work. They provide some measure of meaning, significance, life, value, validation. They are not inert. They're not dead things of stone. They are real to us, and we worship them because there is something that we long for, something unrequited in us, something that we need for life, for meaning, and for some reason, God, in his wisdom and mercy, has decided to withhold that thing from us. Promotion, a possession, a desire for sexual connection, a desire for intimacy, the respect or recognition that we know we deserve. The family that looks the way that we want it to be. The spouse who listens more. The spouse who does not ask us to listen more. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. This list goes on and on. And while we wait, this is, this, this is, this is as real as it gets. And we wait in the hell of our disappointment, the idols whisper, you won't die. 
this isn't really that bad. This, this, this could be the thing that you've been looking for. You can be like God. You, you can have meaning and purpose the way that you've always wanted. Why is God withholding from you anyway? I mean, look, this is a good thing. Why would he hold a good thing back from you? This is one of the most uh, marvelous things in this Genesis passage. Did you catch, did you notice what, what turned Eve's eye? It was the goodness of the thing. Not its badness, not her broken. It was, it was good. She saw that it was good for food. It was pleasant. It was, it was good and uh, for gaining wisdom. The goodness of the thing convinced her to commit idolatry, to, 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 to claim life and meaning on her own terms. And this is, this is the ridiculous thing about idols. They, they offer what we already have. What, what did Adam and Eve have? Did they have life? Yes. Were they like God? They were the most like God anything in creation could ever be. And yet there is this allure that we could have those things on our terms. This is one of the reasons... Um, why telling young folk um, uh, that sex is bad as a way of encouraging them to not have sex does not generally work. It's because of this. It's, it's, not, it's not bad. That's the thing. Like, sex actually is not bad. It's good. Actually, it's not good. It's great. And the violation, the violation, you have to get this, the violation is not in the goodness or the badness of the thing. The violation comes when we try to obtain it apart from God. Does that make sense? This is why idols have such allure for us. They offer these the two promises without relationship or without responsibility. This is their allure, the promise of life and meaning on our terms. So the anatomy of idolatry, the, the allure of idolatry. And the third is the agony of idolatry. The second part of this commandment, the last part of it, answers the question, why should we avoid idolatry at all costs? Why? There are two answers. Idols always lead to our diminishment. They make us less. And idols try to rob you of your covenant blessings. They always lead to our diminishment and they rob us of our covenant blessings. For I am the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the first, idols are always leading to our diminishment. Uh, Andy Crouch has this uh, great quote. Actually, there's a chapter in his book called Playing God that if you want to read more about this, it has a phenomenal exposition of Genesis 3 and talks about idolatry. But he says this, idols always result in the opposite of flourishing, which is human diminishment. And the diminishment in our passage looks at least two ways. First, it looks like the discipline of a jealous God. The first answer to our question is God himself. God is jealous for you and for me. What does that mean? It means he will suffer no rivals for your heart. Now, it's it's a hard word for us to understand. This is not envy. Okay, this is not envy. This is God's righteous desire for that which is rightfully his. God is not jealous in the way that a teenage boy or girl is jealous because someone talks to their girlfriend. 
It is a righteous desire to protect and to love that which is rightfully his. It's the jealousy that a father has for his son's well-being and his daughter's flourishing and health in the world. It's the jealousy that a husband and wife have for one another and for their love for one another and their family. It's that kind of jealousy, the, the, the right and righteous desire for that which is rightfully his. And, and God's not saying, this passage is, is, under, is misunderstood sometimes. God, God is not saying he is going to punish um, you know, innocent generation of children because their dads were sinful or their mothers were sinful. That is not what he is, is saying here. What he's saying is this, that, that just because um, you have learned your disobedience from a previous generation does not mean that you're innocent. Deuteronomy uh, 24.16 says, Fathers shall not put, be put to death for their children. Children shall not be put to death for their fathers but each will die for his own sin. Uh, I grew up in a family uh, that was extremely uh, dysfunctional. We put the fun in dysfunctional, the Mandus did. And so when it comes to normal, healthy things for most, most people, like uh, getting married and having kids and paying the bills, <laughs> uh, I started way far behind. I felt like I did not have a good model of, of how to do those things. And what this text is kind of saying is that it's still, like, I'm still responsible to learn how to do those things, right? I'm still responsible to figure out how to husband well, how to care for my family well, even though uh, I didn't start off in a good place. Does that make sense? That's what's happening in this text. It's not that God's going to just punish someone who's innocent. That's the first way that we diminish. It's, it's the punishment. There's a cost to our idolatry. And God will discipline us as a father who loves his kids. He, he cares about your soul. The second way this diminishment comes about is we become what we worship. Greg Beale, who was my intern professor at, uh, at Gordon-Conwell, wrote this great book called We Become What We Worship, and it explores idolatry all throughout the Bible. This is, idolatry is the thing the Bible talks about the most <laughs> when it comes to spiritual life of God's people. It has a lot to say about it. And one of the most fascinating things is that the, the greatest condemnation in Scripture on, on idolatry is this, we become what we worship. Psalm 115, 4-8 is a really clear way of seeing this. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. Eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. Noses, but they can't smell. Hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound in their own throats. They're, they're completely and totally inert and useless. And then verse 8 is so penetrating. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. We become what we worship. This is why sometimes in the Old Testament, you will hear God say something like, Baal is deaf, dumb, and blind. And then on the same page, he'll be referring to Israel as deaf, dumb, and blind. We become what we worship. The worship of idols deforms you. It deforms you spiritually, emotionally, physically. And here, here is the stark and sad reality about idols. They will always fail. They work for a time. But they are fictional saviors, not functional. They are fictional saviors. Never intended to bear the burden of godhood. 
In time, every single one of them, they collapse. Every idol, every idol comes with an expiration date. And unlike the true God who is true and good, idols are not, and great is the fall of them in our lives. Great is the fall of them in our lives when they come falling down. They will destroy our identities, our friendship, our families, our neighborhoods, our institutions. Idols always, always lead, always result in diminishment. The second is this, not not just that idols always lead to our diminishment. Second, they want to keep us from covenant blessing. The diminishment that we just talked about, which is terrifying, that God would give us over to the things that we worship, is contrasted with God's true desire in this passage. And it is the flourishing of covenant loyalty and covenant blessing. This is the order of grace, right? Grace, obedience, blessing. And we find this, that God wants to give love to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. This is the greatest gap possible, right? That we've got three or four generations over here, a thousand generations to experience his love. And this is what uh, the, the author of Exodus 20 is saying to us. God's grace reaches farther than his wrath. That is good news, is it not? <laughs> that God's grace reaches a thousand times farther than his wrath or his discipline. And this is the good news for you and for me, church, is that, that there was one who was loyal. He fulfilled all of our covenant obligations with God. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't you. It wasn't me. It was Jesus Christ. And this is what Colossians says of him. Colossians says he is the image and the likeness of the invisible God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. And Jesus extends to you and to me by his grace alone, apart from what we've done, he extends to us the covenant blessing of his covenant obedience. Not our covenant disobedience, the covenant blessing of his covenant obedience. But here's the catch. You cannot have it on your own terms. We cannot have it on our own terms. It must come by faith in Christ. And, and, and this is the greatest covenant blessing of faith in Christ. You will become what you worship. Romans 8 says, that each one of us who are in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, will be conformed to the image of God's very Son. We will become what we worship. We will become more like Jesus. He is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and we will be like his image and his likeness. That is good news for idolaters. One day we will look like him. Exodus 20 is really telling us this, that our idols are, they're fictional saviors. It's good to understand them. It's good to understand the allure of them, but they are fictional saviors that seek to diminish your humanity and rob you of your covenant blessing. We are working hard during this series to, to give you practical tangible things. We call them rhythms of renewal, spiritual disciplines that will help order your heart towards the Lord in these ways and in these um, 
in, in, in relationship to these idols and gods that we'll be struggling with. And the one that we want to talk about today is this. It's called the examine. Um, Calvin said that the mind is a forge of idols. And so this is one of the reasons why the examine is so good is because it forces us to um, become aware of what we're thinking of moments during the day that we would consider insignificant. Now, um, some, maybe some of you are not familiar with spiritual disciplines. I wasn't uh, for a long time. I thought they were very weird. Um, I had never experienced them before, but as a, being a part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, they became a part of our regular kind of spiritual life as a community, and I found them to be great things. And examine was the first one that I did because it was easy, <laughs> because it was really easy. There are just two questions. Two questions. And this is, this is what the examine is. You find a time or a space in the day, 10 minutes. It does not take long. And you sit and you review and you think about your encounters over the day. Uh, I use my calendar and I just go through those meetings and try to remember what I was thinking and feeling during them. It's just, just get a sense of the day. And as you're doing that, you ask two questions. Just two questions. When did I cling to and confide in God the most today? When did I cling to or confide in God the least today? You can write these down if you want. You grab a bulletin and write them down. Um, when we do the, uh, the scripture meditation uh, thing, the reflection guide this afternoon, uh, I'll include a thing on, on the exam in there that will go into more detail if you guys want to look at it more. But you can write those two questions down. When did I cling to and confide in God the most today? When did I cling to or confide in God the least? And th- this is what the examine will do to you. Over days and weeks, not, not any one moment, but over time, what happens, it helps you become aware of your day and of your tendency to turn towards God or towards something else. It will make you, as we sung earlier, aware of God's presence it will bring Jesus into the highs and the lows of your day. And an invitation, it becomes an invitation to pray with him, the engagement of your idols real time. This is the rhythm of renewal we'd encourage you to. It's called the examine. I want to close by um, telling you a little bit more of Ellen's story. Is that okay? Okay? That's a hypothetical question. I'm going to tell you anyway. So, um, <laughs> So uh, Ellen graduated. A couple years after she graduated, I was very proud of her. She took her, in particular, her um, addiction and uh, the idol of food in her life very seriously and um, took her eating disorder and treatment for it real seriously. So we went to visit her a couple years after she graduated um, in an inpatient treatment facility just outside of Philadelphia. And so uh, Sue and I, we drove up, spent a day with her. Just, just to tell her, just to, just to show up with her and say, hey, look, we are not ashamed of you. I know, I know you feel like you're ashamed because you have to go to this. No, you are, doing, you are doing beautifully. You're doing what God wants you to do, and we want to be with you in the middle of this. And so we're just walking with her around this facility, and they have this really beautiful garden in the center. And as we're walking, she points to um, a woman who is about 85 pounds. I mean, looks uh, like... It's just, I was just aghast um, at, at how, um, yeah, just how, it was, it, was, it was hard. It was hard to see. She's sitting there, she's around 85 pounds. She uh, was chain smoking. She was sitting with someone that was like her mother or her grandmother. And this is what Ellen said to me. She goes, hey, Derek, you're not going to believe that, but that's Carrie. UVA's own Sex in the City columnist. And, and then as I looked at her, it, she started to come into focus, and I realized Oh, yeah, it, it is her. 
And um, we, I, I was just transfixed because what, was, what I was seeing in front of me was um, the embodiment of diminishment. She, she, was, she was becoming more and more of, of who she worshipped, and it was, it was killing her. And it, 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 could, it was Carrie, but it, it could have been anybody else. It could have been Jay, who was addicted to weed. It could have been Alice, who was addicted to hookup culture. It could have been Brian, who was addicted to video games. Alan, who was addicted to chasing the perfect GPA. It could have been you or me. It could have been us. Because idolatry does the same thing. We become like who we worship, and it kills us. So don't be fooled, church. Idols are fictional saviors. They seek your diminishment, and they seek to rob you of the blessings of God. Let's pray. God, it's in moments like this that I am grateful that you are gracious and good. I want to pray over us uh, Ezekiel 14. Like the elders of Israel, we have set up idols in our hearts. And my prayer is that like the elders of Israel, you would challenge us and um, confront us. You'd set your face against us in love so that you might do in us what you did in them. Recapture our hearts. No longer allow us to stray. No longer let us defile ourselves with lesser loves. Make us your people. And become God over us again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.